I always wondered what the Perry family farm was like, where my grandmother and her five brothers grew up. I'm Carl Perry. I am Louise Perry. My name is Lawrence Perry. My whole name is Richard Arnold Perry. George Nelson Perry. William L. Perry, nickname is Bill. This is The Perry Farm, a family oral history podcast about six siblings' experience growing up on a farm in Chatham, New Hampshire during the mid-20th century. This episode focuses on the effects of war, primarily the Vietnam War, that the Perry family experienced. My Uncle Dick was drafted into the Vietnam War and lives with PTSD as a result. Herbert Perry, father of the Perry siblings, served in World War II and lost his brother Robert to the cause. Uncle Lawrence enlisted in the Air Force during Vietnam, working in teletype communications and continuing service after the war. Do you remember being drafted into Vietnam? Richard Dick was, uh, he's 11, 12 years older than I am. So prior to him, graduation from high school, which was in 68, I believe, he had a car. So he would take me every place. Again, if you think about that, he's 17. I'm 12 years younger. So what's that make me, you know, 
seven, 10 to 12 years younger. So I'm five, six, seven in that range. He would take me every place and uh, we would hang out together. And like I said, we, with George, we'd boil sap down. But he got his draft card. And I remember, I remember the night that he had to leave to go to basic training. It was not a, just not a good night. It was very emotional. I mean, it was, it was an emotional night that he had to leave. Um, and he went away to, uh, he went away to Vietnam. He went away to, to war. We were isolated in China. We didn't have the protests. We didn't have what was going on in the rest of the, of the country. We didn't have the, you know, um, love, major protests. It just didn't happen in China, New Hampshire, from where we were. Or at least I don't remember it. I obviously as a child. And it was going on. Vietnam War was the first war televised. I remember watching it on TV. I remember watching, you know, the report the embedded reporters. It was the first really televised, actual televised war that happened. And so you took this person who he was my big brother, did everything with him he was, you know, hung out with him and he would send letters home to mom and he would say, keep a plate on a table, mom, I'm coming home. You know, I'm going to come home. So when we sat down to dinner at nighttime, there was always a plate set for him on the table, a spot. Um, that was really kind of neat. That, that just, you know, always there was a spot set for him. So when he come back from Vietnam, uh, I remember mom getting a letter from United States military saying, you know, if you see him outside with a flashlight at nighttime, you know, looking for a privy or, you know, a, a latrine, that's just normal functioning situation. And uh, there were a lot of things that they wrote that may happen. And when he come home, um, I was asleep. I had a bedroom off the corner downstairs and I remember this is a pretty traumatizing event um, he was upstairs that's where he slept and like I said he came home and I was in bed so the next morning I come out through he come downstairs I come out through the living room and I came up from behind him and I was extremely happy to see him I hadn't seen him he'd been to Vietnam and I remember coming up and coming from behind him and tapping around behind his shoulder whatever, and he turned and grabbed me and snapped his wrist and threw me across the living room. And he had my shirt in his hand and I was on the couch. And he's like, don't ever come up behind me again. And he was trembling. And that's what war did to him. Um, it was amazing. Quite a change from a, you know, just a little kid. So that's one of the most, uh, I guess, growing up stories of that. Uh, for me was you know dealing with that and then after the fact him being home it never really we were close but it was, wasn't the same and you know he struggled like we you know part of him never came home from Vietnam part of him still there to this day we, George and I and Dick we try we didn't do it this last uh, spring but the last five or six or seven springs the first day of fishing season is fourth Saturday in April, I believe, something like that. The three of us get together and try to go fishing together that day. And uh, um, 
we've done that. I said, like I said, this last spring, we didn't do it. I, I would like to be able to do that again. I know my brother Dick has got pretty advanced COPD and uh, not quite sure where things are going to be there, but I would like to do that. But it, it was back to that whole thing. It changed me as a kid. Um, that's what the Vietnam happened. I mean, like I said, Vietnam, 1969, he was there in, he was there in 70, 70 or 71 at the end. So I was eight years old, nine years old. Um, that was my view of Vietnam was him going away and coming back such a changed person and, uh, changing my relationship with it. Yeah. The Vietnam war was, uh, um, this country changed a lot. I mean, obviously now we, we have the politics and the elections and we've had, we've been at war now longer than we, you know, forever in the Middle East. But uh, the Vietnam War, I think, was the first war. Obviously, there was some reporting from the uh, Korean War, but the Vietnam War was the first time they actually had, I think, reporters embedded with camera crews and, you know, people seeing what was happening on the nighttime, on nightly news. And then the people here that weren't drafted um, having the protest. So you had both factions and, you know, when the people coming home and getting off the planes and they called baby burners and being spit on in military, you know, um, today the military is, you know, honored, but Vietnam war and the military coming back, they wouldn't wear, they were not to wear uniforms because it was dangerous for them to wear uniforms in the United States because they could be harmed. That's a, you just think about that. The change. And I actually remember Fourth of July parade after nine eleven. They had a huge um they honored like all the Vietnam veterans. It was the veterans were starting to you know, after nine eleven, the country started to treat the veterans, especially of the Vietnam War, with respect. Prior to that from 1970 to, you know, late 80s, they didn't treat the military with the respect of the honor that they, that they do now. It's a huge now, you know, I, I travel a lot now, you know, veterans come off the, the plane. I mean, military comes off the plane in their uniforms. People in the airports will cheer, thank them for their service. That wasn't happening in 1970, 71, 72. That was not happening at all. People were spitting on them and, and protesting and, you know, calling them baby burners. And it's, uh, they were there because their government sent them. They weren't there because they wanted to be there, you know. So it, it's a huge change. That the Vietnam War was, even though I was, like I said, seven, eight, nine years old, that was the impression that the Vietnam War had on me was the fact that my best buddy, older brother that I respected and looked up to and went away to war. And when he came back, he was definitely not the same person. Dickie went to Vietnam. Lawrence, he was in the Air Force and he, he went to, they put him finally in Alaska and he cut, well, he cut the orders. 
he knew what was going to happen because he was, he was, um, I don't know if they were teletyping him or putting him through the air or how, but that's what he did. He had top secret clearance. And uh, Dickie, he spent in uh, Vietnam, he spent a year there. When they were telling there was no more uh, DMC, they took all that all out. He was still up in North, um, North Vietnam, he and his whole outfit. And they uh, they spent 58 days in there. We never heard from him for six months. We didn't know if he was alive or dead. No, no, no letters, no nothing. And uh, he, um, they were in there with the enemy, had all their, um, when they tried to go, they were all mined and everything else. He just got lucky one time, stopped his tank. He had a, he drove a 155 millimeter tank cannon on it was something else and uh, he just I guess by the grace of God says I'm going to stop and check and he stopped and it was right where his track was going to go in other words another two feet and he'd have been blowed up but they, they got the mines all out he had to <clears throat> most of them got killed when they got back out of there and uh when he got out, they they all uh, it had changed all into uh, pot, and all the people, the army men had pot, and were all stoned, and all this and that, and uh, so he and the lieutenant got back. They wanted some beer, and they said, "Oh no!" So they took the hundred and Dickie took the hundred and fifty-five millimeter cannon tank. Drove her right down the thing to the officer's club, lowered the gun barrel, and drove it right through the door. He says, you never see so much whiskey coming out of in your life. They took it and went all back to <laughs> the barracks and got drunk. <laughs> they got an Article 15, but they, uh, Dickie would have been a sergeant, but they busted him right out. <laughs> he was something else. When they when they captured uh, Vietnam, they didn't bring them back. The Americans they took them to the Australians because the Australians were they didn't care. They'd take them up in the airplane, drop them, push them out the door, and of course they'd kill them. So the next guy talk, you know, it's the way they were. They didn't. The Australians called Dickie the animal. <laughs> they didn't. But he got back. It was quite the time. I was married down the road. I'd gone to bed and sleep. Mom had called down. Barbara, my, my wife, came in and says, you got to get up to your mother's quick. And I thought Dad was having another heart attack. So I went up. My brain didn't work. That the vehicles were right there in the door. I went out with the boys. And I went to go through the door, and I couldn't. I went to back up and... Drop my shoulder and go through. Mom unlocked the door and I went right on in. And there was Dickie with a razor knife, butcher knife. We had we had one of those that was uh, German steel blades, about that long. I'm going to tell you, 
you could cut a deer's bone right off just like that. He had that. He was going to kill George. I found myself right in the middle of that. We kept talking, talking. And I got, we got Dickie calmed down, got a cup of coffee to him. I got George calmed down, got him into my car, took him home with me, and uh, we settled that that way. It was pretty hairy there for a while. Of course, Mom was crying, and Dad was in there. He was, but Dick, Dick was, um, they all got arguing over two snow machines. They'd been over to um, Evergreen Valley, skier, and they had a bar over there, and you could drive over the road, skidoo over, They'd skidooed over. They had identical snow machines. And they were arguing whose was the fastest. <laughs> and that's what got that started. It was unreal. Was I affected by it? You or anyone in the family? Dick was. I mean, he still, I mean, in fact, I, I had to get off the phone with him. I was, he'd call this morning, and I talked to him because it's kind of like a release for him to, uh, he still, even now today, has nightmares of it, you know. And, and, uh, and so he, he, it definitely, you know, changed him because Dick and I were, uh, you know, because we were just two years apart, so we were like close. And, we chummed together and we'd, you know, get up. And Dick was always a happy-go-lucky, just like me, I'm happy-go-lucky all the time. I don't care. I, I laugh at most anything. That's the way he was because after the, you know, war, it changed him. And, uh, and I just, you know, I've always felt, you know, bad for him because what it did to him as far as, you know, changing his whole life, you know. He's had to live with it. As I say, it's been... I think he might have been, he was either 19 or 20 when he went to Vietnam. And so when he got out, you know, his whole life changed from 20, he's, he's, uh, he's uh, 70, so for 50 years it's changed his whole life. You know? And I've always, you know, been mad against, you know, I love him, don't get me wrong, I love my government and everything, but I've been always upset that, they can send our young kids off to war, but when they get back home, they don't want to take care of them. And I don't believe in that. I believe if, they, if they're willing to take our kids and put them over in harm's way, if they have any, you know, things wrong with them, they should be completely taken care of. You know, and anything that they need, which, which now Dick's pretty much taken care of, but he, he wasn't at first. I mean, he... They wouldn't give him anything at first, and then slowly they kept, but now he's totally disabled, so he has a 100% disability from, you know, but it didn't happen, you know, it didn't happen when it should have, I guess is how I'm saying. So I've always, as I said, I was always close to Dick anyway, so I call him every so often, you know, and, and let him talk and stuff, and let him you know, get that out of the system, so that, so that, um, I just figured 
makes him, gives him a release, so it makes, probably makes him feel better, you know, sometimes. But he's the only one. Kyle, they wouldn't take him because of his broken wrist. Called him poor ass. He was mad. They didn't take him. And Lawrence, he went into the Air Force. And, I mean, it was during the Vietnam War, but he was, he was, he was, um, you know, he was in the intelligent communication in, in Alaska. He got all the, all the top secret stuff was sent through him over to, when he was on duty over to Vietnam, all went through him. So he knew everything that was, you know, going on in, in, in the war zone. Me, I get. Uh, I was gonna. I was gonna go into the air force and the recruiter because I got a scholarship. Taught me out. They said you'd be better off to go to college. And then uh, when I got my draft number, it was so high. I, I I quit college that first year, but my draft number was so high. I I just said, well, I'm. Uh, I don't think I'll ever get drafted, and I didn't. So I didn't. I didn't act at all. So the higher the number, the less likely. Well, because they start, if you're number one, they're going to pick you first. Uh, That's how they did their draft when they started using the numbers, and it was 300, 365 days. And it might have been 366 because of leap year. I don't know if they had 360, but I was 327. That was my draft number. So they had to go through most everybody before they ever got to me to draft me. And once I made it by the first year, you're still eligible for the draft, but they have to take everybody in that next year first before they come back to the second year. See what I'm saying? So after a couple of years, I knew I was never going to get drafted. So I, I never was, you know, I didn't have to go. And then they stopped the draft, so Bill didn't, you know, Bill didn't go. So Dick was the only one that, I mean, Lawrence was, you know, in the situation, but he wasn't in harm's way like, like Dick was. Dick had it real bad over there. He, um, you know, see his buddies get blowed up. And one night the gooks came in and slit the sentry's throats. And we got people on guard duty. So he, you know, he had it real bad over there while he was over there. But the rest of us didn't. Do you remember what it was like when Dick did come back? Oh, yeah. He didn't take no shit from anybody. If he was out in the barn, you know, drinking, and they'd done anything, he just flattened them. He just had that, you know, how they trained him to fight and stuff. So, so he was a, you know, very changed person because he could snap just like that, and he was right back. That's where he was, fit, you know, he was back in the war as far as he was concerned. He, he wasn't in the bar anymore. He was in war zone because he was taught to kill. So, and so he could beat him up, you know, I mean, stayed the hell out of him. No, it wasn't good for him. As I say, he's, you know, and, and he, he, he still laughs now and then, you know, different things, but, but it definitely changed his personality. So I was wondering if you could talk about more maybe going into the service when you did, because um, that was right during the drafting period. Yeah. I went in because I wanted to leave. I wanted to leave Chatham after I got out of high school. And I was working around here. I wanted to, I wanted to get out of here. You know, you know, I'm 18 years old. 
I was working, I worked on in that summer construction with Cal and me and Dad worked at Loon Mountain Phase One when we put the Loon Mountain Ski Area in. And and that year we had a, it was just a dirt road with a gate. We had opened the gate up to drive. We had to leave Chad at three thirty in the morning to be up there by seven in the morning to go to work up in Lincoln. We did it every day, and then come March I went into the military into the service. And then when I went into service, got out of base, they put me in a teletype communication specialist. I had to go to typing school. Can you imagine a farm boy typing? <laughs> I never thought well, I would be a typer. So I went six weeks of typing school, and you had to be 30 words a minute to pass. I did six weeks. I think I got 35 words. But by the end of four years, working, I worked top secret crypto. I had the second highest clearance in the country. They lock you behind doors like this and shut them, and that's it. No windows, no nothing. All yours, because we were sending messages and missions back and forth to Vietnam and all the troop stuff, and we had to decode and encrypt it every day. So that's where I did that. And I ended up when I time I got out of the service doing that, I was typing eighty words a minute with a, a teletype machine, not not a typewriter, but same thing. Backspace five body code. You could letter it out. I could read the. The code when you hit send receive and it goes out 60 words a minute and I'd be there all day long just taking messages and typing as, as it's going out. And you have to go error free too. I couldn't do it today. I can still type but not like that. Because today it'd be way faster with the, with the technology. That stuff I worked on is Davy Crockett material now. <laughs> Uh, so I did that four years. I played, uh, I got, so I was playing sports in the service and I got chosen to play. Um, they picked me in the Alaskan Air Command and I made the all world softball team, played in the world softball championships in San Antonio, Texas in 1969. We finished fifth in the world. Then I come back and I represented um, Elmendorf Air Force Base for the Alaskan Decathlon. They took me. The, base commander asked me if I'd represent them, so I did, and I ended up finishing third in the decathlon for the Air Force for, for the state of Alaska. And I did it for, I did it in basic training, they run me too, with combat boots, and my squad won the base championship on field days. And I won that because I run a mile race and got the points that they needed to win. We won that one. I didn't do all the events. We had different guys from the troops doing certain shot puts and doing thing. But as a team, I, w I had to win that mile race. And I did, and we won it. And they, again, the sergeant says, because he was always on my case. He said, well, I can tell you one thing, boy. He says, you're saying, but he said, you can't run. <laughs> we had to run up them mountains and chat, and that's all we did walk. <laughs> so then I went up there. I went from Holloman Air Base, and I went to Alaska, Elmendorf Air Base for two years. I went to Griffiths Air Force Base, New York, and then I went to Roaring Air Base for the last three months up in northern Maine before I got out. The only effect um, I I think we were we were late enough by the time we didn't get there till like fifty five. So 
Uh, as far as us growing up and feeling effects of rations, no, my father would have, um, you know, he he definitely came out of uh, World War II, came out of the Depression, um, and there, my, my father was, had pictures of him really, really skinny, which meant he, he, he was hungry during his teenagehood and beyond. But not once we had the farm. That's another reason he wanted the farm, is he didn't want to be depending on other people for food and being in that situation. So, um, yes, we were affected by war. Dad's, um, dad basically had what would now be called post-traumatic stress syndrome because he had the nervous breakdown at the end of the war. I don't know how exactly how long. My mother, he was in a hospital in Texas. My mother went down by train. I don't know how long he was there, whether it was weeks or months, but um, it was dramatic. And I think it colored, it colored, like instead of now, like some people get wounded, it, it, you know, you don't feel ashamed of yourself. At World War II time, there was a sense of feeling ashamed or not, you know, manly enough or whatever. Um, and I think some of that went on. Um, um, so yes, we were we were definitely affected in that it it was something that was always kind of in the air in some ways uh, because Dad had gone through that and it affected his ability to work long term at any one place. That's why he needed to be in a place where he could be self sufficient most of the time. And he did work out. Um, he helped build a lot of the Loon Mountain project. Um, that went on um, back when we were growing up. Drove from Chatham to to Lincoln to do that in an old beat up car. Um, as far as the Vietnam, Dicky, um, Dick, none of them. I think I think Lawrence actually enlisted. Um, Dicky was was um, um, drafted, and um, so. He wouldn't have gone to Vietnam, but he was drafted. And he has the most effect of any of our immediate family. Um, he was in direct combat in Vietnam, carrying um, you know, bandoliers and lots, and trying to stay alive. Um, and had friends that were not as lucky to stay alive. And he had after effects that were... I wasn't living here then, but I've heard stories, so um, he definitely had after effects. And, and like my dad, he couldn't really work a lot of times for someone, like a lot of post-traumatic stress syndrome. You can't work for others really long because you don't have the ability to absorb all the shocks that they, people throw at you, all the you know demands and nastiness or whatever might happen. But um, for years, he lived on the farm. Um, he had a trailer on the farm. He lived there, and um, he had he continued the big. My dad would have been gone at, at the time. He probably was doing these gardens, but he had the big gardens. He had a farm stand um, out out by the road, and you know, he so he did a lot of stuff like that. Um, it was the boys, which we were all. It's like the age you're coming out of high school. That's what everybody was when this was mm -hmm. happening. Um, you know, I graduated in 65, Lawrence graduated in 66, Kyle actually graduated in 64. Remember in 68, oh, in 63, 
you might remember that John Kennedy was killed. You might not remember, mm -hmm. but in your notes. Um, mm -hmm. And in 68, um, Martin Luther King and um, Kennedy, uh, Robert Kennedy, they were killed. Um, so there was a lot mm -hmm. of bad stuff going on there. Yeah, no, I was in uh, in high school. I mean, we we all we were we were absolutely blown away. Dad was devastated. We were all just absolutely devastated. Um, you know, we loved Jack Kennedy. You know, I mean, and again, we were the we weren't by that time we weren't the only Democratic family in town because the Wolfgangs had moved in, but um, you know, Dad Dad was a um, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Democrat. I mean, he saved people like my father and others from starving to death or whatever. Because um, he he reversed, he fixed and made right um, the effects of the Great Depression, which was late thirties, um, and. Um, my dad was hurt heavily by the Great Depression, and his family, his whole family, was hurt by that. This has been The Perry Farm, a family oral history podcast about six siblings' experience growing up on a farm in Chatham, New Hampshire, during the mid-20th century. Thank you to my interviewees, Louise, Carl, Lawrence, George, Bill, and Dick Perry. This podcast is part of Ashley Vigentic's Communications Studies Capstone Project through Colby Sawyer College. New episodes will be uploaded weekly until April 2021. Please share this project on social media with friends and family to show some love. Check out my website, ashleyvigentic.com, for more content. The music in this episode is by Dr. Turtle and Jason Shaw and can be found on the Free Music Archive and linked in the podcast description. Until next time.